Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile, here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication and it sponsors this show, makes it all possible. If you'd like to have a look at our latest issue featuring news, reviews, interviews and so much more, why not request a free copy? Just go to Premier Christianity dot com forward slash free sample type your details in and we will send you a free copy of the latest issue premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample but today on the profile i'm delighted to say my special guest is andrew peterson andrew has long been one of my personal favorite songwriters artists thinkers and so much more you're going to hear in this interview his thoughts on everything from the community that he's building to the controversy that he's been through as well with one of his songs and his music videos but if you haven't come across andrew before He's best known as a songwriter, often for writing songs that tell stories. He's also the author of a new book, Adorning the Dark, Thoughts on Community, Calling and the Mystery of Making. And his latest album has just been released. It's called Behold the Lamb of God. It's a Christmas record out now. I caught up with Andrew recently when he was in Oxford here in the UK to host a gathering called Hutchmoot. You'll find out what Hutchmoot is in a moment's time. And before we get started, just a note that there is a little bit of background noise you'll hear during this conversation because we recorded it in a small back room in a church in Oxford just before Hutchmoot was due to take place. So without any further ado, let's listen in to this conversation with one of my favourite Christian songwriters, Andrew Peterson. So Andrew, welcome to the UK. What brings you to these shores? Well, uh, one part holiday and... uh also a little bit of work most of the time that I come here I end up I uh, I want to come because I just love the country um, but the only way to afford it is to also do concerts the whole time <laughs> and so this time I actually we're my wife and I found a way to come over um, and spend a little more time doing footpaths and, and resting a little bit and uh, but also we're here for Hutchmoot UK, which is for the first time. We do Hutchmoot, this conference in Nashville, and this is our first time doing it here. I'm also going to be speaking at Keswick at the end of the month. Amazing. And we're, we're currently sitting here in Oxford in a church building, and as you say, you're doing Hutchmoot. For those who have not heard of Hutchmoot before, they're probably wondering, what on earth is Hutchmoot? What on earth is Hutchmoot? Well, it's a... It's a great name, first of all. Yeah, thank you. It's a, so, the, so in order to understand Hutchmoot, you need to understand the rabbit room which is a ministry that uh, we started um, probably 12 years ago, I think, um, partly inspired by the Oxford Inklings and uh, the, the fact that in the Eagle and Child here in Oxford where Lewis and Tolkien, one of the places where they would hang out, um, the room was actually called the Rabbit Room. And uh, I was struck by the way their friendship gave birth to good work. And it reminded me of Nashville. Like, I've been living in Nashville for 20s more than 20 years now and there's a lot of great things about living in that city uh, but what I realize is that it, it isn't just a, a concentration of musicians it's the fact that when you move there and you're surrounded by people who are better than you it makes you better at what you do and that's all good and well the fact that your your craft is actually um, uh, augmented by 
the community. But the best thing about it is the community. Right. Like like the fact that your your art, you know, you, you you may hone your craft a little bit by being in a city like that is great and all. But the real blessing is the fact that you find friends, mm. and friendships are born that will last uh, if you're a Christian into eternity. Mm. You know, and so which I I, I don't know I, I saw some correlation between the Oxford Inklings and. The, the spirit of the community in Nashville right. that I was a part of and I was like well why don't we just steal their name uh, but anyway all that to say that the, the rabbit room was started as an experiment in community and Christian community I should say and uh, one of the things that after about two years of the rabbit room existing in an online format we realized that uh, we couldn't use the word community if it only existed on the internet mm-hmm. there's really no such thing as virtual community mm-hmm. uh, that it was meant to be face to face and meant to be sh- a sharing of a meal um, uh, one of my f- my favorite authors Wendell Berry he jokingly said one time you're only in real community with someone when you have pulled their ox out of a ditch or spanked their child <laughs> which is extreme but you get the point the point yeah. is community is more than just uh, a Facebook group, mm, right? Yeah, and uh, and so we were like, well, if we're gonna put our money where our mouth is, we need to do something more real than just a blog. And so we started Hutch Moot. Rabbits live in a hutch. A moot means a meeting. Hutch Moot, and uh, and it it was almost like um, the rabbit room was embryonic until and it was born the day that Hutch Moot started in Nashville ten yeah. years ago because we had you know we'd done it for two or three years in this online thing and it was fun it was growing yeah. but then when we actually sat across the table and shared a meal with these people that we'd only known online so it sounds almost silly to call it a conference in that sense because when you think of a conference you think of maybe hundreds of people and uh-huh. something where you don't necessarily know one another but what you're talking about is is a community so it's a smaller gathering great point yes conference yeah it, it is a, we always struggle with knowing how to describe it sure um, because it's relatively small but it's also the way I, I typically describe Hutchmood is it's a three-day feast during which we celebrate the way the Lord speaks to us through story, art, and music, and scripture, of course. And so um, it's kind of like one, one of the things that we say is that um, art nourishes community, and community nourishes art, and the gospel is kind of the rain that falls on that garden that makes everything grow better. And so. Uh, so yeah, this is just kind of like uh, we, it was from the beginning because we are. Pretty, I'm, I'm an Anglophile. I was like, wouldn't it be fun to do this in Oxford, where the original rabbit room? Where it all began. Yeah, and so here we are. So here on the show, we always like to go back and hear about a person's early life growing up. So tell me a bit about growing up in America. Yeah, so um, I grew up in the Midwest, partly, um, which in America it's the part of the country that has no accent. It's like uh, the. <laughs> Uh, old men wear John Deere tractor hats, and uh, it was in Illinois, central Illinois, and um, and so it was just a very rural community. And then when I was seven, we moved to the South. Okay. And so it was um, the Deep South. So right. and all the trouble that comes with that. Beautiful people and and a really rich culture, but it's also a pretty troubled culture. All of them are troubled. Let's face it. So In what way was it a troubled culture? Well, the South. Um, in America, I would even say, especially the Deep South in America, is uh, I mean, the remnants of the Civil War are everywhere, you know. So there was I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, I'm I'm kind of shocked by um, the uh, racism. Um, you know, there was a there was an actual railroad track in our town, and most of the non-white people lived on that side of the railroad track and most of the white people lived on this side. So there was like, you know, and I had, I remember having conversations with friends about how 
you know, in the South, they hold on tight to the the Confederacy should have won kind of stuff. You know, that kind of thing. It's shocking that in 2019 those conversations could still happen. But they do. And 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 at the same time, you know, it's a it's it's there's a lot of lovely things about it. But the, but the do you know Flannery O'Connor? Do you know that name? I do know. She's that a famous name. American writer who died young and uh, but her stories were gothic, southern, um, pretty dark, famously dark. She was also a believer, and um, but her stories were just kind of horrifying. Like every now and then there's a serial killer or there's these bizarre things that happen. And when people who aren't from the South read those stories, they, you know, I, I think that they sh- think she's exaggerating. And she is in a way. But I, as just like the town I grew up in. Like you wow. just wouldn't believe how interesting Mm. Um, the part of the South that I grew up in could be, wow. and so um, you mentioned your dad was a pastor, mm-hmm. so I guess Christian faith was always there right from the beginning. Was it? it well, yeah. Um, well, Christianity was always there. Okay. Um, and uh, and again, that's another thing about the South. It's a very cultural Christianity. So it's culturally Christian, but that isn't very, necessarily the same yeah. thing as what yeah. you would now call Christian faith. I guess. Yeah. I would, yeah. Exactly. And I think the uh, once again, Flannery O'Connor, she called it the Christ haunted South. So it may not be Christian, but she said it was definitely Christ haunted. You know, in the in the South, in the states, the first thing you ask somebody is, "Where do you go to church?" Mm. Most people do. Um, at least when I was growing up there, thirty years ago, they did. And um, uh, but that didn't necessarily meant they had a real faith. Sure. In so when would you say you for yourself kind of had a had a real faith? Well, I, it was. Uh, it's interesting. I've thought a lot about this. Like I was baptized when I was nine. I think I was nine, maybe ten, and had a. I never didn't believe that God was real. I, I don't ever. You know, there were times when I struggled with doubt, but I didn't doubt that God was real as much as I doubted that He loved me. Mm-hmm. And that's actually my still my central struggle. Is I find it hard to believe that He loves me, not because He isn't loving, but because I'm not lovable. Is the story that I have a hard time shaking. And so, uh, so I believed that God was real, and I was, you know, it was like growing up in a church. It was not a hard step for me to go, like, well, yeah, baptize me. Why should I not be baptized? Um, I want to be saved, you know. Yeah. And so I did, but that didn't really mean I knew Jesus. And so, uh, through high school, um, he was just kind of a, uh, more like a nuisance to me. It was like, oh, why do I have to believe this stuff? Because I could have so much more fun guilt-free if I didn't. Um, and so it was when I was uh, 19 years old. I had been touring with a rock band for about a year post-high school. And was um, just aimless. Had no idea what to do with my life. And uh, uh, encountered Rich Mullins' music. And the way he talked about Jesus began to crack the the egg open a little bit and helped me to see that he loved me and especially helped me, the way Rich sang and talked about Jesus helped me to believe that Jesus was a person who was knowable like if you ever watch a YouTube video of Rich talking about Jesus you get the sense that he actually knew him and I would say the same thing about C.S. Lewis like when you read Lewis's account of of um uh being in his rooms at Magdalen College here in Oxford he says you know I I the thing that I had most feared had come upon me. And he says, he had found me. You know, he talks about Jesus as this he who was like the hound of heaven idea. And like I, ha- I did have that sense. I was kind of like, oh, there he is. It's not just an idea, it's a person. And he knows me. And as, as frightening as he seems, 
there's nothing to fear, you know. Um, and so uh, that was the beginning of me kind of like actually giving my life to him and, and as best as I could. It was so interesting in what you just said about your struggle has been believing that God could love you, not because you don't believe that God is love, but because you feel like you're an unlovable person. Tell me a bit more about that. Oh, man. I mean, I don't know. I know myself pretty well. And so um, one of the, the my worst habits is self-loathing. Like, it's really easy for me to get in my head and uh, to... The, the the inner monologue is usually one of self-loathing, wow. self-hatred, and it just, I, I don't know where it came from. People again. might be surprised to learn that because you're someone who sold many, <laughs> many records, <laughs> and you're someone who tours, yeah. and you're someone who people will pay, even even this, this weekend, people pay substantial amounts of money to come and to spend time with you and to hear what you have to say, and so people from the outside might think, surely Andrew is, is confident because he gets a lot of encouragement. <laughs> You would think one one might think no I I don't know I just uh, it is it actually um, now I I can I kn- there's a pattern that I recognize so it doesn't throw me the way that it used to but um, it, it's like after big like like after some some like quote unquote success is when I'm most susceptible to those kinds of things and I, and I've. I don't know exactly why that is, but I remember after uh, we do this Christmas show in Nashville at the Ryman Auditorium, which is this, I mean, I think the best place in the world to see a concert, best place to play a concert, too. Um, and, this, you know, if in American stand- terms, it's, it's old. It's 130 years old or something like that. Uh, but it's, you know, Johnny Cash and wow. Bob Dylan and James Taylor and Coldplay even. Everybody's played in this right. little 2,000-seat theater. And so uh, the first time I ever sold it out on that Christmas tour, um, it was just like, should have been the best night of my life, you know, from a career standpoint. I just, surrounded by my friends, singing about the gospel, about this God that I love and who loves me. My family was there, we finished the show, and I I went home and just wept and felt so sad. And uh, my wife, I was just like, I don't know why I'm sad. I just feel this terrible sadness. And, uh, and I think, you know, I, I, I think part of it is that longing is, um, is uh, unsatisfied longing. Like what C.S. Lewis, uh, he used the word seinsucht, this German word that means an inconsolable longing. And I think those moments when you feel that incompleteness, um, it's almost like God is taking you and actually pointing you toward the new creation. <laughs> like almost physically going like you forgot that this isn't everything, that there is something, a great good that is coming. And you could play the, the best concert of your life and you still won't be complete um, until you see me face to face and know what it's like to live in, in this new world. And so all that to say, I don't know, it's, uh, you know, my counselor and I have talked quite a bit about where this came from. Um, but I think part of it is just I think a lot of musicians, um, a lot of artists tend to struggle with this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, partly because you're just more sensitive. Yes. And so so yeah. tell, me, tell me a bit more about, about music, because obviously you're most well known for being a songwriter, a musician. Where did all that come from? Can you trace that back to kind of childhood and music being a big influence in your early years? Um, it was, uh, it's hard to know. I just always, I always had a uh, propensity toward it in my... You know, anybody grew up in the church, 
grew up with music. It's, it's one of the one of the many blessings of the church is is art. Believe it or not. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I don't know if you guys you guys have like uh, we have American Idol. Do you have something like we that? We do. We have things very similar. Well, similar to that. things. Yeah. I don't know if it happens over here, but in the states, it's every season. The people in the finals, when you say, hey, where did you learn to sing? They'll say church. Absolutely. We had uh, we have Britain's Got Talent, you have America's Got Talent, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the finalists in Britain's Got Talent was a previous guest on this very show. Okay, so yeah. uh, it's so quite it, common for, for yeah. Christians to pop up on these talent shows. And like you say, a lot of the time it's it, the musicians have come yeah. out of church. Mm-hmm. And I've had friends tell me that you know, in this, in this country, if you look at all the big bands, they say all of the best drummers touring with the biggest uh-huh. mainstream artists, they're all Christians yeah. because they grew up in, often in Pentecostal churches where the music was just at such a high level and they've been taught from the age of six to play drums, totally. so there's a huge yeah. culture there. Yeah, and which is amazing because Christian music, quote unquote, gets such a bad rap, and with good reason a lot of times, but you know, if you look at the, the history of the church, Christian music is like uh, given us some of the greatest works the world has ever known, you know, and so I think it's kind of a beautiful thing that, that there's no better garden for a kid to grow up in um, if they want to play music one day. Um, it's affirming, it's safe. Like my daughter and uh, middle son both played on the music team at church from the time they were 12 or 13 years old, and now they're they're playing music for a living. Yeah, uh, in some sense. Yeah. So uh, anyway, yeah. I, so I think it was there, but then it was when I was in uh, eighth or ninth grade when I got into Southern Rock and Leonard Skinner and Tom Petty and Brilliant. <laughs> uh, hair metal and all that kind of stuff. And uh, but then you, you know always was interested in songwriting. And right. so so my um, I think I heard Mark Cohn the song Walking in Memphis and started to realize James Taylor was amazing and and. Uh, my, you know, the compass swung from hair metal to to songwriting, and uh, partly because of Rich Mullins, because right. Rich Mullins was like a, you know, on that that caliber, but he happened to be a believer too, and that was when I saw a way forward. Am I right in thinking? I mean, I know, we'll go on to talk about this because you've become an author and you've done filmmaking and you're running a nonprofit. But as I say, in the main, you're known as a, as a musician. Am I right in thinking that that really music is a career that's kind of been your you're almost your one crisp. It's been almost all you've ever ever done. Right? It's been the main age. thing. Yeah, it has been the main thing, and it's it's uh, the over the last few years the book thing has kind of the the scales have tilted a little bit. Um, the music is uh, it will make you grow old really fast. <laughs> <laughs> like the traveling is is pretty can be pretty brutal okay. and. Uh, you know, there, there, there's at some point in every musician's life, unless you're Bruce Springsteen or somebody like that, who <laughs> e- sells out every show. He does, you know yeah. what I mean? Like he, yeah. part of the people are like, "Wow, how does he do it? He plays four-hour shows and he's 200 years old." It's like, well, it's because there's a million fans who love him and it feeds you. You know what I mean? It's different if you're like in and flying cheap airlines from city to city to city, um, and it's 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 work, you know. And so anyway, I just you know at some point most musicians reach a point where they go, "Am I going to be doing this when I'm 60? Do I want to be doing this when I'm 60 years old?" And uh, and so I wanted to be an author before I wanted to be a musician. And so uh, you know, after my third record, I think it was, was when I in earnest started working on my first novel. And part of that was me thinking, if this novel thing works, it means I won't have to travel quite so much. I won't have to say bye to my kids and my wife quite so much, and uh, so often. And so, yeah, but the music is, is the gas in the engine, is what I usually say. Yeah. Like, if I stopped playing music, it would be harder to sell books. And it would be harder to 
keep the rabbit room going because this is the way that I travel and kind of keep keep uh, yeah. keep the engine running. A lot of your lot of your music is storytelling. It's personal. It's about what you're going through, what you've been through, your life. It's kind of narrative. A lot of it, and that's quite unusual now. A lot of Christian music, if not most of Christian music, is is worship. And obviously, you've written some songs that are more could be more described mm-hmm. as worship and singing to God. But a lot of your material isn't. And there's been certainly a big change in, in this country on that. If you go back 20 years, there was a lot more people writing the kind of narrative, mm. call it what you will, CCM kind of stuff. Whereas now it seems like almost everything that's been putting out on the label of Christian music is worship. What are your thoughts on that? Did you hear me sigh? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think it's, you know, I don't there, there It depends on what I have for breakfast. Like my answer would change. But, um, sometimes I'm frustrated by it. Other times I think... Well, it's just none of my business what's popular. Like, my my calling is not to do what's popular. My calling is to try to be obedient to God with the gifts that I've been given. And um, and, and the, the, I don't mean this in an arrogant way at all, I, uh, but Michael Card um, has on, a, on the wall of his studio, he has a quote from his mentor, and it says, let the excellence of your work be your protest. And so at some point... Um, I know myself and quite a, a, a few other songwriters who were kind of left out in the cold by the worship fad. When the worship fad started, I was just like, I, I just did not feel comfortable. Uh, I was convicted uh, when it came, when the thought crossed my mind, oh, it would be pretty easy to write a worship album and then maybe you could get played on the radio and you could make some money. or you could not sell out <laughs> and and trust the Lord to provide. Yeah. Um, and that makes me sound like a hero. I don't mean it like that. <laughs> but I, I would have just felt gross if I had tried to do something that I didn't love. Sure. And so um, so all that to say, like now I you know, I know people who write some of these worship songs and they're good people sure. and there's some really good songs that have come out of it. But for myself it's a matter of calling. Mm. And and I just kinda of felt like I didn't as far as I can tell, the Lord has um, uh, I, I how do I put it? Um, the, I, I want to make music that is like the music that speaks to me, mm. and it's always been stories. Like, so yeah, I don't know. There's a, I, I'm saying all this, and part of the reason I'm stammering is because there's a um, for years now, ten years or so, my friend Ben Shive and I have kicked around the idea of trying to write hymns. And so I, I wouldn't want to say something that would, sure. <laughs> if I did release an album that was like for congregational worship, it yeah. would be like, what a hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> because I do, I, I, I grew up reading, part, I, some, you asked about music, but from a lyrical standpoint, from a poetry standpoint, in my, when my dad's sermons got boring, I would read the hymn book. And I remember as a kid being super fascinated by the by hymns and the meter and, and looking at all the weird little apostrophes and the hyphens and the like how structurally the hymns all lined up just right. And I miss that in music. Like and, and even when I write my own poetry, it tends to be sonnets because I love structure. I love the way it locks into place like, a, yeah. like you're solving a crossword puzzle yeah. almost. Um, and so I love hymns. I, I think language is, in the old hymns is beautiful. So I don't know. I, I just, uh, I forgot what the question was. Well, you're just, you're, it was you're just, just about worship. Yeah, you're yeah. just saying that you're trying to be true to the kind of music that you want to. Yeah. You want to produce and you sure. want to hear, and the, and the kind of music that speaks to you is a is a kind of storytelling. It's it's full of God and it's full of truth and it's full of Scripture, but it's not necessarily worship music. Not most of us now, yeah, it's not congregational worship. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons I love playing in the UK 
is the the first time I played here. Not only when I would do concerts would it be um, a higher chance of somebody who doesn't know Jesus showing up at the show. Like in the states, it's usually some big church and you do your show and whatever. But almost every time I play here, the pastor or somebody will be like, "Oh, by the way, I invited these people, and they haven't been in a church in 20 years." Right. And so I feel this kind of like missionary fire wakes up in me yeah. a little bit. I get excited about. I start listening to my songs through their ears. Yes. I wonder, like, oh, how did, how do I tell them about Jesus in a way that might, uh, might connect with them, ambush yeah. them a little right. bit? Yeah. You know, like C.S. Lewis said, "Could I not sneak past their watchful dragons?" <laughs> and so, uh, anyway, so I, I like that, but I also love the fact that even. Christians, I can see <laughs> almost every time I've played here, uh, you can get the sense that the people showed up thinking they were going to get like a Getty worship show. And then when I start playing these songs that aren't inviting them to sing along, these songs that actually mention cities and our narrative and aren't all like direct uh, gospel stories or whatever, I see them kind of look at me sideways and, and my, my goal is then to win them over, you know, by the end of the night. I want them to go home thinking, well, I, that wasn't what I expected. And, and also, um, I did actually worship. I actually um, uh, thought about Jesus in a different way than I thought I was going to tonight. And so, uh, yeah, I love, I love playing here for that reason. You're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Howes. We're going to be hearing so much more from Andrew right after this. Join me, Justin Briley, for a new season of The Big Conversation with world-class thinkers including Sir Roger Penrose and William Lane Craig on God and the Universe, Bart Ehrman and Peter J. Williams on Jesus and the Gospels. Join the conversation as we explore life's biggest questions at thebigconversation.show. Do you want to stay informed on the best of what's happening in the UK church today? Premier Christianity magazine is for you. The UK's leading Christian magazine is published every month and features interviews with Christian leaders, in-depth reporting, reviews, columnists, and loads more. And best of all, you can try it for free. Head to our website now to request the latest edition worth £5.95, completely free of charge. Visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication. If you'd like a free sample copy of our latest issue, we will send one to you. Just request one. Simply go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. I really hope you're enjoying this conversation with Andrew Peterson. He's one of my favourite singer-songwriters. There's loads more to discuss in part two, so let's have a listen in. I was uh, reading about how two of your uh, albums were written, really, I guess, about a time you went through when uh, a period where you were battling depression, mm-hmm. um, which has been very interesting in this country to see how attitudes to mental health have changed quite drastically, quite dramatically, in, in really a very positive way. <laughs> We've had even members of the royal family wow. campaigning on we need to talk about mental health more and be wow. a bit more upfront about this. I did not know that. So I think we're now at a point where, where people are willing to talk about mental health in the same way they might talk about their physical health. Sure, yeah. Um, so so tell, tell me a, a bit more about how 
a very dark time in terms of your, your mental health has, has influenced your music. I'd be really interested to hear more about that. I think in the States, it, it's maybe not quite as drastic as it is here because here you guys have this kind of stiff upper lip kind of we do uh, British there thing, is, and know, there like, is still that to be fair <laughs> yeah it's yeah completely gone away sure yeah, yeah. And, it, and there's like parts of that that are amazing you know the fact that uh, you know when I uh, there's a beautiful you know kind of, I think the war may have given give birth to some of that like tough it up and we're going to make this thing happen and there's a lot of beautiful laudable things about that idea but obviously it can have a uh, dark side and I think that it's generational in the states too I think right. that you know I, I've heard my older people in my life say literally why does the past matter it's best to just leave it alone right. that kind of an idea which is like really like to our generation it's like that's crazy talk like no you deal with this stuff because it's all it's all in there kicking around so anyway I don't, I don't know I just uh, the fr- light for the lost boy was this album that I wrote when my kids were entering their teenage years and it, it triggered a lot of memories, a lot of painful memories of my own teenage years. Um, and I was depressed. I was, I was dealing with this grief over my own childhood, like a loss of innocence, like longing for Eden, but realizing that I was broken. And, uh, uh, and then I started thinking about how much, how desperately I wanted them to not suffer knew that I couldn't stop it. That in fact, if um, uh, Paul is to be believed that a life in Christ is a life in which you're going to suffer, and that's one of the ways that he's going to shape them. And so that all the conflict that you feel Mm, as a parent, watching your children going, like you spend so much time trying to keep them from getting hurt. Mm. And there's a moment when you're like, oh, the only way for them to grow into the man or the woman that they're going to be is through some kind of suffering that the Lord is going to redeem. And man, that is, the, it's intense. It, so anyway, that was, I wrote a whole album about that and then toured the whole album. So every night I would get up on stage and talk about like, oh yeah, this is another song about loss of innocence. <laughs> and I had no idea what was coming. Like all that was like priming the pump for me to like tip into this season where that was really, there was a reckoning. And I was, I was going to go through a lot, uh, a lot of pain. And so I was in it and uh, didn't know what to do with it. Uh, you know, had some wonderful Christian counseling, a lot of prayer from a lot of friends. My family was an amazing, safe place. And then the label said, we need you to make a new album. And I was like, I don't want to make an album right now. It would be the most depressing album you could imagine. Because <laughs> I, 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 I'm going through this yeah. car wreck of a season. Uh, but then I just had to do it. And so we put the date on the calendar and I went into the studio and I started writing the songs. And it happened to be uh, springtime. And um, I, I had somewhere in the intervening years had gotten way into gardening, and uh, and springtime, if you're a gardener, is magic. And so you you get to you you experience with your own eyes the the all of creation rehearsing the resurrection, right? And uh, the story of God redeeming suffering is a resurrection story too. And so while uh, going out into the field in my house to, to sow seeds um, was this profoundly healing experience and it was this it was the sign to me that um, that the Lord had not abandoned me that the, that, he, that a Christian never suffers pointlessly that if you are suffering uh, and you are in Christ then it is because whatever's dying in you is being replaced by something good like he's pruning the vine 
so that good fruit could grow. And that's hard to hear when you're in it. Mm. Uh, but that was the beginning of me realizing that he was actually going to keep that promise. And so uh, so that was the album, The Dark Before the Dawn. So, yeah, it was kind of like the, there was this album about beginning the Depression and an album about coming out of the Depression, and I didn't write an album when I was in the Depression. So, uh, yeah, and it's been, it's been really interesting to hear, um, hear people's uh, reaction to it. And the other interesting thing was that the Resurrection Letters 1 was the album that followed that. So it was this joyful album celebrating Christ's resurrection that felt like the best ending to that little... We should, we should talk very briefly about that, with the fact that you released an album called Resurrection Letters Volume 2 first. Yeah. And then you later released yeah. Resurrection Letters Volume 1. So just, just very quickly explain yeah. what happened there. So <laughs> the, the quick reason is that 10 years ago, now 12 years ago maybe, yeah. uh, I was making an album. I had read N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, which is tremendous, I think. I think every Christian should read it because uh, the church that I grew up in had lost the story. Yeah. about the new creation yeah. about what where where this whole story is going sure and I think there was a lot of talk about um, the fact that Jesus died in order to save me but not much talk about why yes like our book has been hugely yeah. influential we, we love N.T. Wright he's a columnist in, in the magazine actually oh but, good uh, yeah but you're right I mean Surprised by Hope is just one of those books that I don't know anyone who didn't enjoy it or didn't find it completely paradigm altering one way yes around. yes totally and it, that's good to hear because I, there's a part of me that was like I finished reading it, I was like why haven't I why haven't I heard this story <laughs> like is it just the denomination that I grew up in in the south that didn't talk about new creation and about where what we were saved for you know uh, so it was a huge deal to me and uh, and so I had read that book I'd been reading the great divorce C.S. Lewis you know and uh, the Narnia books and whatever and uh, was like, yeah, I want to call this album Resurrection Letters, and because all the songs are about kind of the shockwave of Christ's resurrection and where we're going. And anyway, in the middle of the album, I just had this real strong sense that this was part two of a larger work mm-hmm. that I needed. That I wish this could have been an answer to an album about this the actual resurrection sure. of Jesus. Yeah. And it was it was not long before that that Star Wars had. The prequels had come out, oh, and I was I like, see. "Oh, that okay. I could be. It worked for George Lucas. Maybe I could try <laughs> this." And so I told the label, "I was like, it'll be a great marketing, you know, uh, talking point. You know, yeah. why in the world would you do this thing?" And I got so, I was like, "What have I done? It's a terrible mistake because I haven't written the first album." So I put it off because you know that I felt like there was this expectation that it was going to be some grand work of art or whatever. And I just didn't think I had it in me. So anyway, the interesting thing is, I, the album, Volume 1, it took me 10 years to write it. Yeah. And it would not be what it is if I hadn't walked through that intense depression. So if I had tried to write the album first yeah. 10 years ago, it, I, I don't know that I would have understood um, in the way that I do now, which isn't, isn't very much, to be honest, um, what Jesus is up to. You know, like what he's doing. You get these glimpses, and I think that my glimpse came from that valley. Amazing. Um, how does your Christian faith look different today to the one you grew up with? I mean, you, you've spoken a bit about that already, I, I suppose, with, with N.T. Wright and Surprised by Hope. Um, in, in perhaps a church culture, not teaching you certain things that you've, dis- you've discovered later through C.S. Lewis or N.T. Wright. Sure, yeah. speak, but how, how else do you think your faith has changed, matured, developed over time? I think... Uh, I think the there's a couple of things. One of the big things is just that God loves me, that 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 He loves me in a way that includes the fact that He likes me too, right? Um, 
that I just was terrified of it. I just always thought as a kid that uh, I was a massive disappointment to them. And, um, you know, there was this, uh, in the culture that I grew up in, it was like, well, Jesus loves me, this I know, we would sing these songs. But the, the, the unspoken subtext was, as long as you're behaving. And so I knew that I wasn't behaving great. No matter how hard I tried, I knew that I was a day away from screwing up. And, uh, and so it just left me with this, this constant fear. It, it felt like living my whole life as if a, a police car was following me just constantly being tailed by a cop and uh, and I knew I wasn't a very good driver <laughs> and so that's the biggest thing is just I just want my kids to know that like um, that he really does love them yeah. um, and then the other side of it is it's an integrated faith like I think I think there was a sacred secular divide mm-hmm. when I was a kid culturally and and now I just our family always functioned with this idea that there wasn't one molecule of the universe that Jesus wasn't lord over and that he could commandeer anything for his purposes, uh, even bad music. <laughs> and so I take a lot of comfort in that. Uh, so, but no, I, I just, I, I really think, like, I, I tried to grow up from, as an artist, quote unquote. Uh, you know, I feel pretentious calling myself that, but the, anyway, as, as someone who has made their living as a songwriter and an author, whatever, like, I, I would rather my children listen to a really great song by somebody who isn't a Christian than a really bad song by someone who is. Does that make sense? Yes. So, uh, so I would just rather my kids experience beauty and truth and goodness and then talk about how the Lord is speaking through Counting Crows or whatever band and, you know, Paul Simon. Like, let's, let's talk about how all of these things are speaking are ways of God telling his yeah. story. It's, um, it's been fascinating to observe a bit of discussion around this again here, here in the UK with a rapper, a grime artist called Stormzy. I don't know if you've heard I of Stormzy. I haven't heard of him, no. Well, Stormzy uh, released a, a record called Gang Signs and Prayer, and there's a lot of explicit language on it, and a lot of the album is about his very difficult upbringing and gangs in the streets of London. And then there's a song in the middle called Blinded by Your Grace, and the lyrics are, Lord, I'm not worthy. <laughs> Uh, but you came and you fixed me. Now I'm blinded by your grace. You came and saved me. And this this wow. gospel song with no swearing sits uh-huh. in the middle of an album with a lot of stuff that sure. Christians would really have big big issues with. And it's been fascinating to watch Christians in this country. Say, what what do we, we do, do with this? this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we were de- dealing with Chance the Rapper. Uh, exactly the same. State, same thing. Yeah, very yeah. similar. Yeah. And uh, and what is the other guy's name? Um, the uh, there's another. There's a uh, few hip hop artists. Big hip hop artists. It's the same way where they're kind of like, this is Christian music, in a sense, yeah. even though it's it's you know like the language is when Snoop Dogg released his gospel record. <laughs> yeah, like I don't know what to make of it either, but I love the fact that the conversations happen. Right. I love that it's uh, people are admitting that it's not as simple as we thought it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the JPMs. You remember that whole thing, like the Jesus per minute. Jesus per minute. I, I heard business. I heard a story about this. So is this is this a true story that in in some some music executives in Nashville in the Christian music world they wanted a certain number of G- uses of the word Jesus within a minute of a of a song. Is this right? Well, I, I feel like it's probably an urban legend, but but you know there there is some there's a legitimate debate how what what does a Christian music station play and what don't they play? Right. And what criteria do yeah. they decide? It, it, it's not a simple. I think admitting that it's not simple is the best it's, it's, way to yes. start. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I just. Uh, the cool thing is, like, that's one of the things we're doing here at Hutchmood is, we, like I said earlier, it's a feast in, during which we celebrate the way the Lord 
speaks through all these things. Obviously, Scripture is is the most explicit revelation that we have from Him. But they, you know, they say that there are two books of books of uh, uh, revelation. There's the book of Scripture and there's the book of nature. So if you want to know what God is like, uh, read your Bible yeah. first. Second, look at the world He made. Yeah. Pay attention to the way He made uh, the seasons. Yeah. And, the 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 stars and the heavens and and also look at the way he made human beings to make so whether they know him or not there's this impulse to order and to beauty and to tell stories and, and there's this kind of heartbeat of stories beating out into the world and uh, to draw a line and say well this is a Christian one and that is not one it there there is a kind of sacred art and I think that I fall into that category like I actually feel like I'm uh, a, a Christian who is a songwriter who is usually called to tell stories about Jesus, right? But there are also Christians who are songwriters who are writing love songs, and I think that's okay. <laughs> um, wanted to talk about uh, your song, Is He Worthy? Which is a huge, huge song. And you you went through a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a tough time with, with this one, and you, you wrote this great line. You said, the only way to truly learn something is to screw up. And uh, there was a bit of controversy around your, around your music video with this. Um, t- t- tell us a little bit of, of what happened. You released, released yeah. this song, and there was a choir, and it later, I think you later realized everyone in this choir was white, mm-hmm. and you got a lot of... A lot of flack, a lot of criticism, yeah. a lot of abuse, perhaps even online from people saying um, this song is supposed to be about the kingdom and heaven and all tribes and all tongues coming together and worship, and yet there's only white people in your video. <laughs> and yeah. you, you kind of held your hands up. And like I said, you wrote that line: the only way to truly learn something is to screw up. So sure, yeah. tell me a bit more about that time and, and exactly what you learned. I guess. Well, if uh, as someone who is a people pleaser, it was not fun <laughs> to to get piled on on the internet. Uh, I it, I hated that. Uh, season when it was just like, oh, it, it, just feeling like people were angry at you is is not a fun feeling, and, and uh, you know it's, it's really hard to not keep looking at Twitter and Facebook yeah. to see if like like what people are saying. Yeah, yeah. And this is like on on the in the scheme of things, the tiniest blip of a controversy. Like, it was a big <laughs> deal to me, but in the scheme of the world, well, not I, a big I should deal say, I should say, and I mean this is a compliment, your career has been devoid of con- controversy, isn't it, really? I mean, you, <laughs> yeah. haven't, you haven't had blow-ups sure. at all. No, I haven't, I haven't yet. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good little preacher's <laughs> kid, you know. Um, but no, I just, I, I'm not a feather ruffler. I've no, never sure. wanted to be that. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I have yeah. friends who, who do that, and I've always looked at it and kind of like, I just, I just want to be, try to be kind to people and, and make good music. And the rest of it's kind of the Lord's business. But sure. the, uh, but this situation, yeah, it was like we had an open casting call. And it, there was a terrible storm in Nashville the night of the music video. And, you know, there, it's expensive to make a music video. And I'm not, you know, my label doesn't... I, I don't sell gajillions of albums, so it's a big deal for the label to give me any money to make a music video. So there were all these factors that were at play. And, like, we, we had a casting call for, I think, 200 people to be the, the congregation that shows up at the end of the video and 30 people showed up that night. And uh, and at some point in the making of the video, it was just, we had six hours in this rented church building and uh, to make this this thing happen in one shot. And it was this intense thing, we'd 11 or 12 times of running it to try to get the right take. So the video that you see online is actually literally one uh, camera shot. And at some point, like probably the sixth take, I looked around and I was like, oh no, like there's not one single non-white person in the room other than the director of the video. Right. 
and I no one's gonna see. Yeah, and I asked my, him and my manager. I was like, hey, just so you know, is this is this bad? Do we yeah. need? It? And yeah. he was like, kind of like, well, what are we gonna do? It's right. fine. I'm sure it's fine. I'm right. sure it's fine. Yeah. And he had other things on his mind. And then the video came out, and uh, I had been praying, praying, Lord, be glorified through this music video. Let people like. It. You know this very pious prayer like really I really can't wait for people to see this and I hope it like draws people to you and almost immediately as soon as it came out the door it just got body slammed by somebody pointing out uh, and I was like what and I look and the irony is that the moment when I sing the phrase from Revelation from every people and tribe every nation and tongue he's made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with us on the camera pans across these lily white faces and the irony is painful like it really is like I, they, a lot of people email me even now like today I got an email from somebody saying you have no reason to apologize you did your best and I'm like well, I'm not beating myself up over it mm. but I really did miss a chance sure. to visually convey a beautiful picture of the kingdom yeah. of God and so the, the real thing was after it happened of course my defense mechanisms kicking in and I'm going it's not my fault I didn't we tried to whatever and so I called some friends of mine who are not white and I was like hey and they were like hey <laughs> and I said so tell me what it was like for you to watch this video right. wow. and they said um, first of all you know we love you yeah. we're not mad but it was pretty painful and they kind of just told me their story this is what it was like for us and our kids to watch your your video and so to you know for the people who are like going Andrew you have nothing to apologize for I'm kind of like well, okay I get what you're saying um, but uh, but I really did miss an opportunity to, to tell a better story and so um, that said a lot of people then started asking me to reshoot the video if you were really sorry, you'd reshoot the oh, video. Wow. To which my my friends were like, "Don't listen to those people. Okay. That, that's that's a bridge too far." Yeah. And then the other part of me is like, "I wish I could take the, the, the there's a th the thought of taking the apology down now that it's been a year and a half, right? Um, and I keep getting these emails. But then I was like, "No, I would actually rather the video stand along with the response, so that um, we get a picture of redemption. We get a, to see what the Lord is doing. You know, not." through the video being awesome um, and not through some dejected apology but through uh, the combination you know mm -hmm. the story that unfolds um, when people dig around and they find that so all that to say like yeah no I, I don't think anybody is still mad at me I think everybody understood yeah. but in this um, in the in the, the the weather of the culture right now um, it really would have been a beautiful chance to to, <laughs> to tell a better story and I just I, we just couldn't do yeah. it and so the cool thing about it is like uh, because Chris Tomlin recorded the song and he kind of pushed the song into like you know a broader audience yeah. the, the wonderful thing about that is that the uh, um, th this week I think there's an African American songwriter in Canada I think Vancouver is recording it and uh, she asked me to fly up and sing on it with her and I couldn't I couldn't do it I wish I could and and the, you know if you go on YouTube and you search it you see every tribe nation and wow. tongue singing this song oh, wow. which is just it makes me weep you know it's just such a beautiful picture of the Lord making good of of my mistake well I mean that that song is a is a great example of how 
there is a huge amount of depth to your work, to your songwriting. There's, you pack a lot in. And that doesn't come by accident. That comes because there's depth to you as a person. And I noticed that part of this event here in Oxford, you talk about spiritual formation. And I'd love to know for you, just personally, do you have daily, weekly, monthly practices, spiritual disciplines, call them what you will? What are the sorts yeah. of things that, that mold and shape you as a spiritual person? Well, the, the, biggest, the biggest one is the most obvious one, which is just church. Like, we just... Uh, uh, church is taken for granted in the best way in our home. Like, our kids just kind of know that's what, we, that's what we do on Sunday. Sunday feels different than the rest of the week. Um, we have a, a Sunday playlist that I wake up and I turn on. <laughs> so that these are the songs that kind of mark. So if the kids wake up and they hear the thing, they know that today is a different day. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm. it's funny. Uh, th- that is the one that the Lord kind of wrote into the New Testament. This is what this is what you should do. You should go to church on the first day of the week and gather with other believers. And, and so an extension of that is just the fact that um, the rabbit room is part of the, the thing we try to drive home is that community really matters. Like it really matters that we find an excuse to see each other, especially in an increasingly fractured and uh, virtual quote-unquote world, um, that any chance you get to, to be in the same room with your friends put your phones away and look them in the eye to go on a walk um, to engage with creation in some way uh, is a chance to fight back at that that kind of cultural tidal wave. And so for me, um, uh, about six or seven years ago, I started keeping bees. Bees? Uh, yeah, so I'm a beekeeper and, and I'm a very amateur beekeeper, but uh, and gardening. So I, I started gardening. And, and like I said earlier about in that season of depression, like those are some of the things that pulled me out of it. Mm-hmm. It was look at the world that the Lord has made, you know, pay attention to it, um, realize that you are a member of creation, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a very in a very practical sense, literally showing up at church on Sunday, trying your best to 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 make sure that the before you check the Twitter, you actually read. Bible <laughs> for a minute. Uh, well, you, you laugh, but I think you know people, myself included, struggle with that, right? Sure, I, mean, I do. This too, is a very yeah. real rubber hits the road. Mm-hmm. Are we going to stand out and be different as Christians? Yeah. Are we actually going to prioritize time with God? This is huge, isn't it? Yeah, it is huge, and I think that it's more physical than we think it is. And what I mean by that is, uh, I, um, I had a, a huge tree fell down in my yard. Um, Ten years ago, this huge white oak, beautiful grandfather of a tree, and uh, the year we bought our house was the year that it decided it was done. It was so heartbreaking, <laughs> and, and it's thousands of dollars to, oh, to have somebody come out and yeah. take a tree away. So yeah. I was too cheap for that. So I just called the neighbor to actually just do the work of cutting it down. So this massive tree falls, and I went and bought a chainsaw and told my wife, I was like, "This is my summer project. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna save money and spend two hundred dollars on a chainsaw and take it apart myself." bought an axe, chopped the thing. And so uh, what I realized after the initial three days of trying to do this is that it's exhausting. And there's a lot of good excuses to not chop down the tree. And so little things like having to walk to the shed to get the chainsaw would be a reason for me to not go out and work on the tree. So I went and bought a Tupperware tub and I big enough for the chainsaw and the gas can and the, the axe and everything. And I put it next to the tree so that any time during the day I could be walking past the tree and I knew that if in 10 minutes I could be 
right. making progress, right? Yeah. And so eventually, I ended up taking the tree apart. And actually, I was in better shape than I'd ever been in my life. Now I'm flabby. <laughs> my wife keeps asking me, when is another tree going to fall But all that to say that like, I removed the obstacle mm-hmm. to the work, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, we all, if we've got our phone plugged in by the bed, the tendency to check stuff before you go to sleep is so present. So not long ago, I bought a phone charging station that we keep in the kitchen. Right. And so at night before I go to bed, I plug the phone in and I have an actual physical book by my bed that I see that I read. Um, and it's a tremendous difference. And the physical matters of uh, 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 discipline actually change the other thing. And to just drive the point home, there's this. Uh, uh, a friend of mine was talking about C.S. Lewis's book Paralandra, which is the second space trilogy book. And there's this moment in the story when uh, Ransom, the main character, is on this planet, and there's this demon-possessed guy, Weston, I think is his name, who uh, he realizes that he has to stop. This this demon-possessed guy is going to corrupt this this Edenic world, right? And that God has put Ransom there to actually physically stop this guy. And Ransom realizes that he there is no praying that's going to stop the guy. That he has no weapons because he's living on this new world. That he's, he's actually no clothes. And he has to physically subdue this demon-possessed guy in order to fool. And it filled him with horror because he was like, I can't pray this away. I've got to actually do it. And my friend was telling me, talking about pornography. He was saying, he was like, we, he, he was like, I spend so much time praying, God, take this lust away from me. Take this temptation away from me. And maybe it's as simple as take this computer away from me, right? Maybe it's as simple as put covenant eyes on your computer so that you remove, you, you, you buy the Tupperware thing mm-hmm. and put the, the chainsaw in it so yeah. that you, you make it easy to be obedient. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? That's what it sounds. And so a lot of times we, we, uh, we keep um, discipleship in the realm of theory. Mm-hmm. We think that it's only a change of mind, but we're not just... We're mind, we're physical beings. And so what is it in our lives that we need to, 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 uh, to engage in in order to like actually um, change the way we're moving in the physical world, right? Yeah. And so I think that's the thing. It's like, uh, like here we are at Hutch Moon, yeah. sharing a meal with each other. Um, we're, we're making it easy to be in community with each other, right? How would you describe your calling? Uh, I... Um, I want to try to tell the truth as beautifully as I can. And you've done that not just through music, but I, I said we come towards the end, but I said we should mention your books. You've done that through oh, books yeah. as well. Uh-huh. So tell me a bit about the writing thing, because this is... Uh, yeah. I mean, you've already spoken so much about C.S. Lewis. I imagine there's something similar going on there with wanting to communicate truth through fiction. Yeah, I think so. I, like the Part of it was just... I just I'm just a nerd, and I loved those books yeah. when I was a kid. I loved the Narnia books when I was a kid. I loved, but I also loved Dragonlance and like the the, the pulpiest of pulp fantasy. Like was anything that that had a dragon in it, a dwarf, <laughs> a few battles thrown in. You know, we are we are down it. the road from Tolkien's. Yeah, we're like a block away from his house. From his yeah, house, yeah. right? And so Lord of the or Lord of the Rings, of course, is just like to me the the, the Mount Everest of fantasy novels. And even C.S. Lewis doesn't, he's, he's in the foothills from a fantasy novel standpoint, although the, the Narnia books are their own mountain range. They're just not in that mountain range. Mm-hmm. That's a complicated answer. But anyway, <laughs> I, uh, I, the metaphor is getting out of control. <laughs> but the, uh, anyway, I, I, yeah, I just I lo- always wanted to see what it was like to get inside a story and, and fight my way through to the, to the end, you know? And um, 
and so it was just one of the great joys in my life was getting to to see what that was like and and I, I hope I'm not done like I'm uh, touring too much right now I'm trying to find a way to stay home long enough to find another story right. but I want to write another book or two another series um, but in the meantime the the publishing company is about to re-release new hardback editions of the of the Wingfeather Saga so we're right. with new covers and the whole thing so it's going to be really fun to kind of uh, give those a new breath of wind um, but no I just love it it's just like this, it's, it's the same it scratches the same creative itch as music actually it feels easier than music right. I don't think of myself I, I, I'm not a terribly good singer uh, or, I think I would disagree with that but. well you're very kind thank you um <laughs> I should just say it's a, it, I have to work harder to make it sound good than a good singer would <laughs> um, and same thing with playing like I, I can play but I'm usually the worst musician in the band which I love being I love being in a band of really great players but with writing it's just kind of like I get to be home I get to sit and, and uh, in my office and tell stories and have, mm. have lunch with my wife yeah. uh, whereas the music always tends to take me away sure sure so, well, to, to finish on a on a musical note, don't worry, I'm not going to sing. Um, <laughs> you do have a new album coming out in October. I do, yes. So, what can you tell us? I can tell you that it is the most joyful recording process that I've ever really? been a part of. Um, it is uh, a re-recording of "Behold the Lamb of God," which is a Christmas album that um, that I recorded about fifteen or sixteen years ago. Um, but started performing 20 years ago. So it's the 20th anniversary of this tour that we've been doing every year uh, where we tell the story of the Incarnation. And uh, the subtitle is The True Tall Tale of the Coming of Christ. Behold the Lamb of God, the True Tall Tale of the Coming of Christ. Uh, and that language is taken from um, the famous story of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and uh, Hugo Dyson having this conversation about myth. True myths. True myth, yeah. Jesus is the true myth. And so... Um, I wanted to tell the Christmas story in a way that would kind of like uh, help people to see the the uh, I don't know dust the cobwebs off of the mm. Christmas story that we think we know yeah. a little bit yeah. and uh, and so it starts in the Old Testament works its way forward to the New Testament and uh, and so it's a uh, it's just been one of the great surprises of my life is that we that that show has continued the tour has continued all these years and uh, and so we decided to to go in the studio and, and redo it because over those 15 years since the recording it's changed subtly but significantly and uh, and um, invited new voices into the room and spent two days in the studio in this huge beautiful it's called Sound Emporium where all these great records were made um, Elvis Costello made a record in there and, and had 18 or 20 of my best friends all in the room together who recording an album that we knew every single note of because we've been touring it for years and uh, and they pushed record and uh, we played through all the songs three or four times and added some fun new elements to some songs and and, uh, and then we're doing this the biggest tour that I've ever done this this fall to celebrate the twenty. But is it coming to the UK? The tour? Yeah. We tried really oh. hard. Actually, we tried really hard to do it this year no. and uh, and uh, we were talked out of it. Somebody, somebody talked was out like, of it. I "Send think them to me next time." Yeah, I'll I talk them into it. Again. Probably should. <laughs> but the nice thing is, you guys don't have Thanksgiving, so in in America. We can't do Christmas before Thanksgiving. Oh, of course. So end of November is when the tour starts. But if we if, if Thanksgiving falls late enough, there's like a two-week window where we could actually get away with 
sneaking over to the UK and okay. doing things. Okay. So we're, we're working on it. <laughs> You're working yeah. on it. Well, Andrew, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat. Thank you so much for sharing Thank with you. us. Thank you. I'm Sam Howes, and you've been listening to my conversation with the singer, songwriter, author, non-profit founder, and so much more, Andrew Peterson. I hope our conversation gives you a little bit of a sense of Andrew's work to date. If you want to find out more from him, do check out his website, check out his music, his books, and so much more. Andrew-Peterson.com is the place to go if you want to find out more about him. My thanks to Andrew Peterson for being the guest on today's show, and my thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time.